Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today we have on the podcast Dr. Claudrina N. Harold, co-editor of Charlottesville 2017, published by our friends at the University of Virginia Press. Dr. Harold is professor of history and African American studies at UVA. Welcome to the show, Dr. Harold. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Most definitely. And so uh, before we get into Charlottesville 2017, can you talk to us about how you and your co-editor, Dr. Lewis P. Uh, Nelson, came to uh, create this volume? In the aftermath of the white supremacist rallies of August 11th and 12th of 2017, many of us at the university found ourselves responding to a variety of demands and initiatives specific to what we call the summer of hate, but also connected to a long legacy of racial injustice and deep economic inequality uh, in this community and beyond. In many ways, this book emerged out of our desire to use our particular skills and perspectives to, I think, facilitate a deeper understanding of the events of August 11th and 12th, which resulted in the death of one counter-protester, Heather Heyer, We wanted to situate these events in a broader historical and political context and to offer some suggestions for creating a more just world. I think working and writing in the midst of a storm is difficult, but when uh, you've been blessed with community, the process is a lot smoother, but it's difficult uh, nevertheless. And in so many ways, 2016, 2017 was quite difficult for the community of Charlottesville. Uh, In 2016, a a young student activist, a high schooler, Ashley Zayana Bryant, uh, initiated a petition calling for the removal of the Confederate statues, the Robert E. Lee statue and the Stonewall Jackson statue. Uh, In May, uh, I mean, after she called for that petition. She had the support of the city councilman, uh, an African-American city councilman, Wes Bellamy. And through a series of events, the city began to have an intense conversation about these statues and what they meant. In response to this conversation, in response to calls to remove the statues, we saw an upsurge in white supremacist activity in the city of Charlottesville. So even before the white supremacist rallies on August 11th and August the 12th of 2017, white supremacists were returning to the city. Uh, there was uh, a Klan march in the spring of 2017, and there were uh, other white supremacist activities uh, throughout the early part of the summer. And so in some ways, August 11th and 12th was a culmination of these events. And you always, 
recognize and understand the reality of white supremacy, but there was um, a specificity, a singularity to what happened. And like I previously stated, many of us coming back, um, or I should say starting school, wanted to find a way to respond to these events as citizens, but also as um, as academics slash intellectuals. And, you know, reading the edited volume, um, I learned a lot because I've never actually been to Charlottesville. Um, and so this uh, the edited volume, mm-hmm. um, and along with reading some works specifically f- uh, about and from um, uh, Thomas Jefferson, were really my, you know, my introductions in particular um, to, to the area. Um, and so, you know, it, it was it was really profound just reading through the text and really just seeing how um, a lot of the debates and a lot of the folks who were historically involved um, in, in making Charlottesville what and who it is are all people who are entangled um, historically in, in um, battles over, you know, who who is, you know, who is American and who's. Um, who, who's not, who's worthy of, of staying in the United States and who's worthy of being sent back. Um, and so in that particular spirit, um, can, can we uh, particularly talk about how and why um, y'all chose to organize the text in the way that you did? Because I think it brings up a lot of uh, the, the areas that I just mentioned. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, organization was Very difficult. And I think when time passes and maybe when I retire, like in 20 years, I can talk about uh, the process behind the book, because I honestly think there is a there's a book about the book. Um, Anytime you're writing after a tragedy, there are so many complexities. There was the struggle um, or the initiative uh, in terms of the press to get this out. And in many ways, to be completely honest, uh, we were thinking about, you know, they were thinking about the anniversary. And so when there's a push to get something out, but to also model a type of writing where you are truly, you know, sort of writing in the wake, um, it it can be difficult and you can make some mistakes and and you're thinking about themes, Um, but you're also thinking about people. And In many ways, what happened in Charlottesville revealed the necessity of interdisciplinary uh, scholarship, uh, complex, deep, uh, layered analysis to raise the questions of or to to provide answers to the questions of was this a home coming or was this an evasion? how do we think about and think through the politics of the First Amendment and the Second Amendment and the ways in which they blend together? To answer the first question, you need a historical perspective. To answer the first question, you also need the skills of uh, literary analysis to understand how the president of the college at the time, Teresa Sullivan, responded to the ongoing threats of white supremacists and the ways in which her response, as Lisa Woolfolk so brilliantly noted, revealed her ideas about whether these white supremacists 
carried a certain kind of danger. Um, and that, that may not be the, the fair and correct phrasing. Um, but one of the things that I think the counter protesters and the, and the folks who were really organizing around this in the spring and the summer understood was that there was potential for violence. And it's interesting to go back and look at how people were responding to the threats or the potential of threats and the extent to which they viewed these white supremacists as violent. And so you needed historical analysis, you needed a sociological analysis, you needed a literary analysis that involved close readings where you look at every detail of, say, presidential correspondence, uh, tough legal questions around the First and the Second Amendment that I think many of us that are at universities have to confront. Um, you need that historical analysis to understand the roots of this, to understand the deep and complex history of Virginia, a state that gave us Thomas Jefferson, but a state that also gave us Nat Turner. You know, a state that gave us white supremacy in its various forms, but a state that also gave us institutions like Virginia Union and Hampton Institute. And so how do you begin to understand those complexities? How do you situate current manifestations of white supremacy at in Charlottesville, at the University of Virginia, within the larger context of the eugenics movement being birthed in many ways at the University of Virginia, but also understanding that a Paul Beringer, a faculty member at UVA who propagated the idea of Black intellectual inferiority, was also petrified of what was happening at Hampton Institute, even petrified of what was happening at Tuskegee under Booker T. Washington. And so also understanding that the racism that we get in the 1910s and the 1920s is also a response to the emergence of a new Negro, a new Negro that has its manifestations in Charlottesville with the opening up of black businesses, with the buildings of building of schools, with the strengthening of the NAACP. And so you need history to understand that, but also to understand the specificity of the moment, to understand why Virginia became a site um, or functioned as a site of white supremacist um, activism that I think is also related to Virginia being a swing state. A, a, a traditional red state becoming increasingly blue anxiety over um, the changing demographics of Virginia. So one of the challenges that we also had was tracing this, you know, kind of to Jefferson, but also understanding the, the more contemporary context. And I think that's, that's extremely important, which may involve understanding the university that you know, the white supremacist organizers came from. What was UVA like in the 1990s? Well, UVA in the 1990s, uh, the decade in which Richard Spencer was here, was um, had its highest black enrollment. 
in the 1990s. Had a growing number of um, Asian Americans that were coming to the university. You know, so when you begin, that's not to say UVA is like a bastion of progressivism, but what it means is I think we have to understand also the context, the, the more recent context in which these these folks are um, operating. So for us, um, it was how do we marshal the resources and the talent that we have at the University of Virginia, uh, the interdisciplinary perspectives, and, and really try to respond in the moment and in concert with a lot of initiatives that were that were that were happening at the university uh, in the aftermath of August 11th and 12th, and so I guess around September I was confronted or asked uh, I would say confronted by my co-editor Lewis Nelson, <laughs> Lewis Nelson, who is uh, a professor of architecture, but is also a uh, vice provost uh, for the university, vice provost for community relations, uh, who does wonderful work on the history of slavery in Jamaica and has a new book actually out on the uh, history of slavery, along with Mari McGinnis, who's a provost at the University of Texas on the history of slavery at the University of Virginia. So he came to me and said, Claudrina, you know, I know you You teach a class that deals with the history of African-Americans at UVA post-civil rights. Uh, You, um, you know, work on, I work on these films with my um, colleague, Kevin Everson, kind of on the history of African-Americans at UVA Black Student Experience. He said, would you be interested in co-editing this volume with me? And I said, of course not. (laughs) And, um, I really had to think about it because I had some other commitments. Uh, I was not in Charlottesville on the day of the um, the white supremacist uh, marches. I was not here on August 11th and 12th. Interestingly enough, I had just um, visited Birmingham doing some research. And so I was sort of on this... Um, kind of deep Southern tour and headed back to Jacksonville. And so um, while I had been involved in, in various um, sort of political issues, less around the, the monuments, more around issues like black students and, and living wage and stuff of that nature. Uh, so I had some reservations about what it meant for me as someone who identified with the community and felt that I was very much connected to certain activist communities, but I was not there on that day. And by that point, there were already emerging these these conversations and narratives about who had the right to speak and not to speak. And so I wasn't sure. And at the same time, I knew that, you know, I'm a, I'm a historian of the American South. I do a lot of work on um, Black, you know, Black Southerners in the late 19th century and early 20th century. A lot of that work focuses on Virginia, though largely the Hampton Roads area. So, um, and I do stuff on the history of the university. And so I was pushed to, I said, you know, maybe I should do this. And I'm also concerned at times uh, that 
when there's sort of scholarly work on these issues that particularly related to the university, um, we need to be a part of those conversations. Um, it can't just be that we're sort of called out to, you know, be on panels and even to sort of perform this critique of the university to make things look balanced. But when everything is kind of coming out and the scholarly work is coming out, it has some of the same diversity issues that, you know, we criticize. So um, I agreed. Long story short, I agreed. And so then the process became choosing who would be a part of um, the volume and asking some folks and sometimes getting response or not getting a response. And at the same time, the university press, uh, University of Virginia press, um, which was wonderful, saying, okay, and we need everybody to have their essay in like four weeks. What? So the turnaround, four yeah, weeks. the turnaround time. So whew, four weeks, um, a rough draft. And uh, I probably shouldn't even be revealing all of this, but I mean, I, I, I think it's no problem in revealing this because the book came out August 10th and 11th. So it came out a year after the events. And if you know anything about academic oh, yes, publishing, do. you know that, um, that's a that's a miracle, and so we also but but let's just I'll say this, and I'm very I'm very proud of the volume. Uh, these were also people who contributed: Risa Golubov, who's the dean of the law school; um, Lisa Woolfork, who was actively involved in Black Lives Matters, the local chapter, but also actively involved in uh, counter protests. She was actually. Uh, at the protests, at the rallies um, that day. Um, she was near the site of the murder. Um, and I'm not being sensational, but just kind of giving you perspective. Uh, and so we also reached out to people who we know had written short pieces in the aftermath and said, you know, can you extend this a little more? Can you write a little more? So, uh, and that was the case with even myself. I, I teach a class called Black Fire, which is on the history of African-Americans. And so some of this stuff I, you know, I lecture on, but also I have written a short piece on, um, I've written two pieces, actually, one on the history of Black studies at UVA. And then I had written a piece on um, the living wage movement. And so um, what I wanted to do was tie the events to a larger tradition of protest. And so just using my Self as an example, it was I, I didn't start from scratch with with the essay, and so but the turnaround time was 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 very quick. Um, so uh, yeah, I think um, we had everything to the press by late December, early January, and I think it was probably late December. Um, so it was a very quick turnaround, you know. Um, and there are things, you know, I may see things that I say that I cringe about now, but I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm very happy with the process. And I think, um, you know, maybe in five years, I could definitely see sort of an expanded edition because I would be the first to say that uh, there were probably some voices that um, could have been included. Um, and that's a whole, you know, that's a whole nother conversation that we could get into later. 
Yeah, no, that that's, that's a lot of uh, a lot of information, a lot of context right there. Because um, as, as I definitely know, um, you're somewhere around the fiftieth uh, person that I've interviewed in the last year and a half, almost two years now. And so I've gotten to learn a lot about um, academic publishing and and as you just mentioned, it's very <laughs> a year. What that don't happen. Well, clearly I have the book in front of me, so it does happen um, at times. And so, um, you know, congratulations just on a on a, on a side note for that. Um, but this particular kind of volume is much different than most because you are someone who actively, you know, not only is, lives in the community, but you also teach there. And so um, what has that particular experience been like in the last year? Um, and also, as a second question to that, do you feel any closer to, you know, the community in Charlottesville um, uh, after co-editing this particular volume? Those are great questions. So to the first question, I don't necessarily think that my relationship to the community has um has changed. Um, this is this event was in many ways like a part of a string of tragedies since really um, almost 2013, 2014, there was always there was always something whether it be, um, so like in 2014, fall of 2014, um, Anna uh, a student, uh, was murdered. Uh, 2015, one of my students, one of my closest students that I had known since uh, his first year here, Martise Johnson, was brutally beaten on the corner. And some of your listeners may be familiar with Martise Johnson's story. He was the then third year student who was on the honor committee who um, was beaten by ABC officials on the corner and his bloodied face, you know, circulated throughout the media. And it raised fundamental questions about the hyper-policing of uh, African-Americans uh, and he was seen, you know, screaming, but I go to UVA, but I go to UVA. Um, and there's a hyper-policing of African-Americans in the city of Charlottesville. And of course, that happened in the spring of 2015 that was deeply connected to uh, Black Lives Matters and all of the protests around, you know, police brutality. I mean, these students are also, particularly Black students, you know, this is the Ferguson generation. You know, this is the generation who uh, sometimes... Um, came into politics because of Michael Brown. You know, this is a, so there were like protests around these national events and then there were these other events. And then, you know, there was the UVA story about the fraternity and the Rolling Stone story and, and, and issues around campus rape. Um, so there was literally something happening um, every semester. So it's interesting to note, and I think, you know, we should be honest when, there were emerging all of these conversations around the Confederate monuments. And in 2016, John Mason and others were a part of this Blue Ribbon com Commission. 
And I can remember being asked, you know, Claudrina, you know, you need to come out to this. You need to support this. You need to get your students involved. And (laughs) I almost had this thing like, look, I'm busy. And because I want to be completely honest. And that was largely because I hadn't recovered from the protest around Martise. And the protest around Martise Johnson created other issues. Uh, You know, is Black Student Alliance too radical? Are they doing too much? Are they giving space for other Black students? And then there emerged conflict between the Black students and some Black administrators. So all of that was going on as well. And so even after some of the protests around Martise, and of course there was an ongoing lawsuit and just everything, um, it was almost like battle fatigue for some for some folks. And um, so in terms of has my relationship changed, I would say in some ways, no. I mean, my second year here, I was involved with rallies and protests around living wage and ensuring that workers had a living wage, workers who at this university are overwhelmingly black and brown, you know, and a large number of women. And so, you know, the university is a site of intellectual production and work, but it is also uh, a site of labor. It's a site of protest. And so in some ways I would say that um, nothing a lot of things didn't change. I teach you, I taught a course um, called Black Fire that looks at the history of African Americans at UVA post civil rights, 1964. And to be honest with you, I've been teaching it since 2014. The thing that did change, the class usually fills up in the first day of registration is that I let as many people in as I could. So 256 people took the class. Uh, it normally, you know, it always, I, I sort of kept it around 140, 160, just because um, I didn't have a lot, you know, I don't have a lot of TAs. I kind of use graders, so I do a lot of the grading as well. And in the spring semester, I also teach an intro to African-American studies course. And so, um, so like that semester, I taught almost 400 students. Um, <laughs> and, but that's not, I mean, that's, that's kind of how, you know, my world functions in a way. And so, um, the only thing that changed was I was, I attempted to be more mindful that one, I wasn't as involved in some of the protests and some of the conversation around the monuments. And I was not there on August 11th and 12th. And so I tried to make sure that I did not infringe upon other spaces because it got things got really, you know, sort of interesting. And I think there were some accusations in the community that people were attempting to sort of profit from um, the events of August 11th and 12th. It helped that I had sort of, I think, a history and a background. And I think some people knew that. Um, And I just tried to, you know, sort of stay in my lane, but there, I think there was some interesting dynamics, some interesting, uh, turf wars, but, um, so in the sense of my relationship to the university, 
no, it didn't. It didn't change a lot. I had more work to do. I was on a lot more committees. Um, every dean, <laughs> every provost wanted to create a committee, and so I said no to like everything, like in August and September. And I thought waiting until October to say yes to stuff would make life easier. It didn't. So um, I ended up co-chairing a committee um, with the former president, John Castine, dealing with issues around changing uh, historic, historic markers and signs and, you know, buildings that are named after eugenics, like what should be the university's principles in dealing with this kind of stuff. And so, um, you know, committee work increased a little bit, but there were some things that were basically... Um, the same. And in terms of my relationship to the community, I think it's pretty much the same. I think you can't be all things to all people at all times. And so my, you know, when I first got to UVA, actually my big lecture class was a labor history class. And so that's why uh, I sort of was involved with the living wage movement, because a lot of those students who were organizing around that would take labor history. And so for me, as far as a political issue, considering that UVA is the largest employer in Charlottesville, um, that was a way for me to engage in something that I feel has deep meaning and importance to the community. But um, I think when you begin to spread yourself too thin and to really talk about things that you're not an expert on, um, it can, it can get dangerous. And so, uh, I try to stay in my lane of, um, what I, what I, what I think I know best. Um, and I feel like I didn't answer your second question. So you can, um, ask me again, cause I can't remember it. <laughs> no, no, no. You, you definitely hit no, no, no. Believe me, that that's a okay. Um, you you definitely um hit all of the uh, particular points um at which I uh, definitely wanted to highlight. And um in the last um couple minutes, we'll go a little over thirty. Um, in the last couple minutes, um, you know, you 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 had mentioned just before uh, about battle fatigue, and um, uh, one of the things that you know people are a lot talk about is you know self care and. You know, how do you how do you deal with that? And so for this bit, can you talk to us about how you deal with the battle fatigue? Because it definitely sounds like you're just so involved in 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 a lot of different things. Right. On top of, you know, your own uh, scholarship and, you know, having to take care of that. And um, I also ask this in light of um, one of your colleagues, uh, Dr. Marlena Doubts, um, a recent uh, bit uh, from on the from the Chronicle. Um, as as well, and she talked about what it meant to be a a, a black woman uh, trying to gain tenure and, and, and such like that. So, so it's a lot of different things, you know, compounded. So, can you talk about the battle fatigue and how you how you deal with that? Yeah, I I mean, um, it's hard to say no, um, and. It's hard to say no when doing the work and working with students brings you a certain level of pleasure. Um, next year or this year, I'll, I'm, I'm the incoming chair of the history department. And one of the biggest struggles, when you do that, you get a course release. And one of the biggest struggles 
is me finding a way to sort of balance administrative work and teaching because I'm a person who teaching and working with young folk give me it gives me a lot of joy. You know, where some folks see having a two now even a two two load as a burden, I don't. And um it's it's a joy. So part of the, the self care is making sure that you um you commit to things that you are um, that you believe in, and that give you, gives you joy. And I know sometimes people can sort of look at it from the outside and say, "Wow, she's um, she's doing um, a lot." But it you know it brings me you know it brings me uh, a certain level of joy. But no, self care is a, is a major um, is a major issue. I had to learn to operate or to have self care. Um, with the media. So what I'm doing now, I really don't do a lot. And I can recall, um, and that's largely because I serve as the faculty advisor to the Black Student Alliance. I've been doing that since 2011. Uh, One year, they just really pissed me off. And so I took a year's break from them. I probably pissed them off too. Um, But I saw like doing Martise Johnson's ordeal, the ways in which if you're not clear on your relationship to the media, it can hurt your organization. You know, if you're not clear and say, okay, every leader's going to get a chance. You can do Cooper Anderson. You can do CNN. You could do, you know, BET. You can do, everybody needs to have some kind of voice because personal feelings, uh, Envy, jealousy, frustration, it can all set in. So after the the white supremacist rallies of August, the rally in, on August 12th, I mean, and I think what, I mean, uh, it wasn't two hours after the rally that my inbox was full of media requests from News Hour from New York Times, from Washington Post. And I vividly remember some colleagues telling me, like, it would be good for, you know, they said this, it'd be good for you. It'd be good for your career if you wrote an op-ed. And that's just also not my form. You know, that's not, I'm not good at that. I mean, I just don't think I'm, you know, op-ed. But I also know that it just saps your time in a way and so I say no to those kind of things. Um, I would rather, you know, be a part of the history department's uh, forum. So we did a series of forums throughout the year. And like the first forum that we did, and, and, and I gave a talk on just the history of protests at UVA, you know, there were 300 people. And that's my public, you know. Um, so part of self-care is like not trying to do everything. Um and I also think, you know, it's important to um, talk about the plight and, and to talk about some of the issues that Black women face, but also I think talk about the issues that a lot of professors face, and particularly professors who teach sometimes really large classes. Um, I sometimes wish when we have this conversation, and I may get in trouble for this, but it just needs to be said. We sometimes have these conversations about self-care and the overburden of work. Trust me, that sometimes that cat who's teaching a Civil War class with 400 people, 
was not teaching it in a way that those 400 people want to learn about the Civil War has a set of questions that that person teaching about certain things that got eight people in their class and they talking to the amen choir never has to deal with. So like I teach big classes and sometimes my issue is not just kind of the subject, but it's also just the volume of students. And so um, this may not relate directly to um, self-care, but I, I think I think academics, we're going to have to have, and even invisible labor, um, we got to have a little more honest conversation about that. Because I know brothers and sisters that are teaching at HBCUs, teaching four fours with 500 students, and they're not, they ain't talking about invisible labor. <laughs> and that's not to say that they don't have labor. I want to be very clear on that. But, but, um, we have to be more generous in our conversations, I think, around those, those issues. Um, you know, that teacher that got, that has 400 students or 200 students, and I'm not trying to sort of create a fetish out of numbers, but sometimes when things happen, and there's trauma involved, they have to deal with these things too. And they may not necessarily have the identity that we associate with some of these discourses. Um, but that's just me because I kind of take it for granted that everybody at the uni- in the universities <laughs> are criminally overworked. <laughs> so, I, you know, I mean, I try to be, um, you know, I try not, I try to be, I try to be generous and honest, you know, and I just, you know, I know people like Greg Carr at Howard teaching like 500 students, you know, and uh, you, you get, you get what I'm saying? So, um, oh, believe me, I, you know, as I said offline, I'm a, I'm HBCU guy. I know, like I, I was, um, I remember uh, I was, um, let me see, this would have been, let me see, probably like 2013, 2014, um, when my time at FAMU was coming to an end. Um, and I had a conversation with one of my um, other uh, undergrad colleagues. And I, you know, I, I always wondered, like, I, and, and this is where I was at the time, and I'm a lot different now. But then I was like, when I look at someone's faculty website uh, or, or faculty page, and I'm like, like dang, bro! Like, like where your where your um where your publications at, man? What, what's happening? But then I'm like, I'm like, then I started to. My, my friend was like, dude, how? For, first of all, was he a great teacher? It was like absolutely. And so you know that to me takes everything away. Then because it, to me, like if you're a great teacher as a student, that's really what I care most about. But um, more to the point about the invisible labor, the next part that she asked me was how many students did he have to teach? Because at FAMU, we have undergrad and we have um, the master's program, um, a ma- master's in um, uh, applied social science. So, so the master's program um, in history, political science, public administration, I think in African-American studies, I believe too. And so, um, so as you're talking about with the amount of students, right? 500 students, that you have to teach while also trying to get tenure, while also having to hold down these different commitments. Um, and so then I had to, as I'm going through, you know, my graduate school stuff and my master's and now in the PhD, now I'm really like, 
well, damn, I'm 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 honestly surprised you can do anything with with having to teach, right? And also the um, what teaching takes out of you, right? Because right when you're speaking, you know, everybody, yep, wait, yep, 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 everybody not teaching, <laughs> and that's the conversation we don't want to have. This is true. This is true. Everybody's teaching. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, every but that's fine. You know, it's like it's fine, but I just think we have to be. Um, careful in um, yeah, but I mean you're right, and I mean you're coming from fam, so you know that experience. Um, but you know I know that experience of people just in here, and they you know they're 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 grinding, and that's a, once again create a fetish out of it. But getting back to the self care, you have to make certain um, decisions. I think last year, you know, doing the the anniversary, I I was interviewed by the Chronicle and I think it turned into like a question and answer thing. And I did something for a salon where I went through and it basically a reprint of the chronology and the volume. But, you know, no, I don't. Um, and there have been a lot of times where I've been asked to write. There have been a, several. I mean, like I said, something has happened. We were we were on last year was actually a you know, a relatively calm year. But there was a period, like, from 2014 to, of course, through 2017, where something was happening, like, every semester. And uh, like I said, you know, it's hard to sort of sit down uh, and write when you got to go. I remember when Martise happened in in March, it was in 2015, the spring of 2015, you know, I was teaching an intro to African-American studies class that had 120 students teaching Black Fire. That thing had like 170 students or something like that. And I think I was actually also doing like a little small seminar. It was, I was doing an overload and that, that's on me though. That was my gym. But um, I can remember I was just so angry with what had happened to Martise. Like I just was popping. I mean, I was saying all kinds of stuff. And I remember that, you know, like there was some there was some media in there and I always thank them for a few of them for their generosity because they didn't like reprint. Um, But one of the things that I also remembered was a lot of people had come to Black Fire because they knew they had heard. I mean, so folks rushed down to Charlottesville to um, after Martise's picture sort of went out and uh, they knew there's this class that was about black, you know, black, quote, black UVA, but basically the student leaders, white and black, you know, they kind of take the class. So the media knew that they had access to students if they really, you know, if they wanted to interview folks. And right after black, I taught the intro to African-American studies in the same room. So I teach those two lecture classes. I taught them back to back. And one of the things I look back over now, I mean, everybody in the class, like fire, came that day. And you know how classes when they're like 150 people or more, folks don't always come. Everybody came that day. People from the class the year before. So I remember it was in Minor Hall. It was the building was just packed. But there was no thought like on a higher level. It's like, okay, how do we deal with the media? You know, there may be people coming because I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm just a teacher, you know, and that's fine because it's also consistent with the vocation of the black scholar. So I think one of the challenges that we have is 
in I, balance what Vincent Harding talked about, the vocation of the black scholar to, to speak truth to power. How do you begin to balance that, the vocational call, the, 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 um, the vocational call of black studies that's never consistent with the university? Mm-hmm. How do you begin to negotiate this language of mm-hmm. labor with that? You see, mm-hmm. um, um, that's not to say you work yourself. To, it, that's not, but if if it's about vocation, the issues that I may have with just not doing anything will be greater than the issues that I have. Um, with doing something how do you take money you know this is a question to academics what did the university respond to august 11th and 12th they created all kind of funding initiatives do you apply to those funding initiatives because part of those initiatives are a way to publicly say the university oh we're doing something and then there emerges critiques within the university, within sometimes the black community about how, okay, a relationship to those funding opportunities. You know, mm-hmm. some people apply for things that they had already been working on, life events. It's like, I don't know how ethical that is. Like, those are the, like, those are the questions. And 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 so that's also one of the fundamental problems about when you're navigating these tough questions via social media and everybody retweeting everybody, you have no understanding sometime of the institutional internal politics of that institution. You could be retweeting somebody that got some problematic politics, but you don't know <laughs> because it's just all things are important within the context of institutional politics, and in some ways, disaster capitalism, <laughs> you know, and, and a form of that even happens moment. And so that's why I'm very honest, very honest, even about like thinking about the politics of this book, you know, um, how do you know, how do you, though we know books don't make, academic books don't make any money, but some of the people who provided a critique of it, they they don't want, you know. So even trying to market this book, like on the anniversary, it was real. It was odd. I didn't, I don't think, and, and I, I don't want to lie, but like I didn't do much tweeting about it on August 11th and 12th. I kind of let, I think I may have said something August 10th, but I may have let those days pass because it was very awkward for all of us. Um, and I think when school came back in, we did, we sort of did something that was talked by the press of trying to make sure that the book got in the hands of every UVA student. So also the way in which this book served a very local purpose. Um, but, you know, I don't shy away from, you know, the politics of it. I had people who emailed me uh, and wanted to know um, why they were not in the book. Um, it was it was a lot of in, it was some interesting dynamics sometimes on on Twitter um if somebody something like you know I was there and you know can I get a book 
you know, I go to the bookstore and buy a book and like say, hey, it's in my office now. I mean, that, you know, you're constantly trying to, you know, sort of balance those things. So I think getting back to the last question about self-care, I think you just have to have a certain kind of clarity about what to do and, and, and how you want to do it. And um, that book didn't take a lot out of me because I was not going into an area that I wasn't familiar with. You know, I was familiar with it. I have written about it. I've done film on it, you know, so there was some, there was some familiarity. So I'll <laughs> stop there because I have talked. No, no, it's all good. And, um, you know, it's been a, it's been a real awesome pleasure to, to have you, um, on, on the program today because, uh, you know, you taught me a lot, um, not only through, um, through the book, but also through our conversations as well. And I'm sure the listening audience is, uh, is probably saying a couple amens going out, mm-hmm, you know, you know, uh, definitely co-signing a lot and, um, is also learning a lot about Charlottesville as well. Um, because as you were talking, I was, you know, I, I was jotting some down real quick in my mind that was at the tip of my tongue. And to me, when I think about, you know, when we talk about, you know, Jefferson, Washington, Lee, you know, the eugenics movement, um, the colonization, even in the 19 teens and 20s um, and, and to, to Liberia and such. And also, you know, civil rights movement and, and such like that and stuff that's going on today. Um, America is Charlottesville in many ways. And Charlottesville is, is America in, in many ways because of all of the, you know, national stories. Right. George Washington doesn't have any kids, but his through his wife, uh, um, you know, Martha Washington, um, uh, Custis Washington. That's how the connection that you can get to Robert E. Lee and, and, the, and the Confederacy. And obviously, we know Jefferson as well. And, you know, so, so to me, um, I learned a lot and I really appreciate you. And um, in the last question that I'll have, um, you know, if, if you don't mind divulging a little bit, um, what are you working on right now? Um, you know, what you know, what maybe can we have to bring you back on New Books in African-American Studies? So I'm working on now a, on a book called um, Undy Comes, A History of Gospel Music in the Soul and Hip Hop Eras. And it's, um, I guess, forthcoming. Uh, it's, it's basically done. Uh, it's at the history of gospel music from 1968 to 1994, 1968 is the year that uh, James Cleveland created the Gospel Music Worship America. Uh, 1994 is the year that uh, Kurt Franklin uh, really emerged as a super-duper star. His debut album came out in 1993, but 94 was the year that it really um, became popular. 1994 was also the year, I think, that groups uh, BBNCC really recorded their last sort of album, but it, it asked this question of sort of how will we think through the politics and the theological tensions uh, of Black America if we put music at the center of the analysis. So it's a book that takes the music seriously. It's a book that takes the um, the politics of the music, its land, its conservative strands seriously. Um and attempts to sort of provide, I think, a history of commercial gospel music. And um, it was great, you know, it was great working on it. And I was in many ways working on it when I was also editing the volume. So in the midst of the storm, to be able to turn and listen to 
Mahalia Jackson and Aretha Franklin and the Winans and Walter Hawkins and um, the Clark sisters and Commission and so many people that I grew up and that sustained me in the meaningful ways. Um, it was it was awesome to sort of turn to um, the interiority of Black people um, because one of the things that I think happened and that's even with Charlottesville is in the effort to talk about white supremacy. Sometimes we have a tendency to do a history of race relations rather than African-American history. And I I consider myself a historian of the African-American experience more so than uh, (laughs) what white people did to black people, though it's intimately is connected. Uh, So what I'm working on, and I just came black actually from the Black Star Film Festival. So I had a film um, that I co-directed with Kevin Everson. We've done about eight short films um, since 2013, 14. And so I had a film, we had a film called Hampton that played at the Black Star Film Festival. So in addition to this gospel book, I'm I'm, I'm still working on that focuses on the uh, African-American experience at the University of Virginia. That is exceptional. And congratulations on, on getting your film um, in, in, into the Black Star Film Festival. That That's a, an amazing accomplishment. And um, as, as well, yeah, no, no, for sure, for sure. And um, and as well, you know, you talked about uh, really the white gaze, really, you know, and turning away from it and looking, you know, into the interior life uh, of African-American people and, and Black people. And, and that makes me think about, right, what happened earlier today. Um, we're recording... Um, on August uh, 6th of 2019, which is now the date uh, of the of the home, you know, go, not a home going, uh, but yeah, the, you know, the home going of um, Toni Morrison. Um, and so, you know, she, you know, that in that, in that amazing clip, I think from the 90s, um, where she's responding to the question of, you know, you know, why don't you white, white, oh, well, not a Freudian slip, but you know it's appropriate. Um, uh, writing for for the white gaze, uh, why didn't you do it? And she says, you know, I'm writing about black people, and that's that's good. You know, that's good for me. And so um, it's a very, um, you know, maybe that's a spirit that's that's speaking from within you right there with uh, with your new uh, book coming out on um, on you know gospel music and black culture from from the late '60s on. Um, and as someone who grew up on Kirk Franklin, right? I don't know. I was born in 92. So I don't know a world without Kirk Franklin, AKA Plaz from Fort Myers and and his, you know, gospel music like that, that that's a part, you know, stomp, right? Stomp revolution or some remix revolution, you know, uh, Riverside, right? Got, you know, you know, God's property. Like I don't know a world without, you know, Kirk Franklin in, in, in a very much central role. Um, and and so to me, like, I, I'm very much appreciative of, of this work. And, um, you know, uh, someone else from Jacksonville, uh, Dr. Sherletta Kinchin at University of Louisville, she's also writing a book uh, about stacks. And so, you know, it's really cool to see this you know, Jacksonville, Florida, you know, Duval County, Duval, you know, contingency, you know, how to do it. I'm not from there, but, but you know, you got, got to do it, got to do it for the culture. Um, you know, got, yeah. so it's really cool to see, um, you know, y'all doing this amazing work uh, about black popular music and, and it's, you know, and, and, and it's obvious importance to the history of our people. 
Um, so, so I really, I'm really appreciative of you for, for, for being on the program. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm sure this will be first of many different, uh, times that we'll be able to converse with each other. Yeah. It was great talking to you. Really good talking to you. Most definitely. And, uh, once again, folks, yeah, no, no problem at all. No problem at all. And, um, you know, once again, New Books in African-American Study listeners, uh, we have had the amazing opportunity to chat with uh, Dr. Claudrina N. Uh, Harold, who co-edited with uh, Dr. Lewis P. Nelson, uh, Charlottesville 2017, The Legacy of Race and Inequity. And uh, once again, I'm your host, Adam McNeil. Please rate us, review us wherever you get your podcasts. Please check out Himalaya. It's a great podcast app that I've been using a lot. They have a lot of great interview, uh, a lot of great podcasts and and such. And so uh, please rate us, review us, and let us know how we're doing. Um, and until next time, folks. Once again, I'm Adam McNeil, your co-host for New Books in African American Studies. Over and out. <laughs>